Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of September 2020 and this is episode 177. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian, lawyer and lecturer Dr Catherine Bond, Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales, about her recent book on law and Australia during the Great War. Catherine spoke to me from her home in Sydney, Australia. Hi Catherine, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? I am an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Like many listeners and many of your previous guests, I developed an interest in Great War history when I was at school, particularly in high school, but Australian education at that time kind of gave a a bit of a skewed view of what the Great War was like. Coming from Australia, we're all aware of the Australia and New Zealand contribution to the Great War in terms of the Gallipoli landings, which led to that famous famous word Anzac and Anzacs as soldiers. But when we studied the Great War in high school, and I studied the Great War as a specialist subject in my last year of high school, the majority of what we were learning was actually revolving around European events. So the outbreak of the war and the Western Front, for example, but we never really learnt about Australia's contributions or what life like in Australia during the Great War. A few years ago, I began a project at intellectual property and war. I come from an intellectual property law background and became interested in how intellectual property was used as a weapon in war. So how the IP creations of the enemy would be utilised in war. And as part of that research, I became interested in the regulation of the word ANZAC. So the word ANZAC has been regulated in Australia since 1916, and it's actually a protected word in the UK as well. So we have very strict controls over who can use the word ANZAC in Australia since the introduction of this legislation in 1916. And as part of that work, I found a whole range of letters held in our national archives from grieving families, wives, mothers, fathers, who were seeking permission from the government to name their homes Anzac. This was something that was banned at the time and still is today. And I found so interesting these people during this absolutely devastating time of their lives writing to the Prime Minister or the Attorney General to ask permission to use this word. Probably the only time that these people had interacted with law at all. And it got me interested in thinking more generally about how people lived their lives during the First World War and how law interfered with and intersected with their lives during First World War. And that's how I ended up with my current book project. I wonder whether you could start by giving a brief overview of what your book covers. The book explores the lives of a number of individuals living in First World War Australia and how their lives intersected with law during this time. So it creates a series of what I consider to be legal biographies, mapping people's experiences with law by looking at their personal, their daily lives and what they would do 
doing during the course of the war. So it, there's a chapter on two men who were responsible for the drafting of the laws, a police officer who enforced the law, two women, including Adela Pankhurst, one of the famous British suffragettes, who were imprisoned after protesting the laws, two men born in Germany who found themselves interned during the war, as well as a whole range of individuals who experienced other discrimination as the result of laws enforced in First World War Australia. And it also looks at a few individuals who in fact benefited from these laws as well. And why do you think your book is important? I think the book is important in a number of different ways. There hasn't really been an interrogation in Australia of how law was used during the Great War. And it was a major tool of the Australian government during that time. But despite the enormous amount that has been written about the Great War in Australia, hardly any attention had been paid to the use of law. But when you started to investigate that issue, as I do in the book, you see how law was used as a tool against the people of the country, that it was open to abuse and it was indeed abused for personal vendettas, despite the promises of the government that the law would be fair and it would be reasonable and it wouldn't discriminate. But we see examples throughout the course of the war of law being applied in cases that were discriminatory, oppressive, stripped people who had lived in the community for decades of basic human rights. And the book is important because because even though it might be a century on, it finally exposes those th that discrimination and holds those responsible for that discrimination and for these laws as well. So let's start at the very beginning. Who were the people who drafted and implemented the legislation that was um, passed uh, in Australia in, in 1914? So there were three men responsible for the vast majority of the laws that were passed in Australia during this time. They were the Attorney General, Billy Hughes, who later became the Prime Minister of Australia in 1915. And he was responsible for the direction of the laws and the policies underpinning those laws. If he wanted to create a law, then it was up to his second in command in the Attorney General's Department, Sir Robert Garrett, to draft those laws. He was the Solicitor General of the Commonwealth and he would often boast, or he would later boast, of how he would draft up new laws directed at the war effort in a mere matter of minutes. And the other individual was the Minister for Defence, Senator George Foster Pearce, who was also responsible for overseeing many of the prosecution in the war effort during the course of the war. On a day-to-day -day basis, though, it was local police officers who were actually responsible for enforcing the law. So in Australia, we have a federal system. Uh, we have the Commonwealth Government, of whom Hughes and Pearce were members. And then we had the state governments. And many of the states offered use of their local police forces in order to enforce these federal laws that were created as part of the war effort. This was really invaluable because you had this local knowledge that the Commonwealth was then able to harness for the use of the war effort. And so in the book, one of my chapters is about an individual called Frederick Sickerdick. He was a police officer in the state of Victoria. And as might be, and as is suggested by surname, uh, Sickerdick, his grandfather had emigrated to Prussia. He had been born in um, 
another state and then emigrated to Victoria. So what is interesting is that even though Sikadik was an incredibly valuable police officer, he could speak German and so he was responsible for a range of matters relating to German-born individuals. He could communicate with them. He could translate documents. If Sikadik had in fact done something wrong, he would have found himself on the other side of the law uh, as individuals whose fathers or grandfathers were born in Germany could in fact be subject to the restrictions that were imposed on German-born individuals during this time. So there were a range of individuals who were responsible for the creation and enforcement of the laws. Billy Hughes and Sir Robert Garrett, the primary men who I hold accountable in my book. Now, obviously, there was a tremendous amount of legislation that was passed, but what was the general purpose of the laws that they introduced during the Great War? So all of the laws were created with a view to enhancing the local war effort. And this was done, or it was attempted to be achieved, through a whole range of different laws for a number of different reasons. The main law passed, or the main law that was used to pass regulation for the local war effort was the War Precautions Act. And this was based on the British Defence of the Realm Act, which was introduced in 1914. But as the war progressed, the War Precautions Act and the restrictions that underpinned it went far beyond what had been introduced in Britain. So the War Precautions Act was an umbrella law that that was used to introduce provisions ranging from censorship of newspapers to uh, recruiting to um, registration of enemy aliens. But there were other So, for example, uh, the trade with the Enemy Act and the Enemy Contract Contracts and Nullment Act, which were aimed at breaking down certain enemy-owned companies or companies who had entered into contracts with enemy, now deemed enemy company. So these laws, all, they were all created with the intention of bolstering war efforts. The trouble was there was a lot of them and whether they actually achieved that purpose is another question entirely. So you've touched on it already. So how did the law de- deem with individuals who were regarded as as a threat, um, such as German nationals and other people they may regard as unsuitable. So as soon as war was declared, within a week of the declaration of war, uh, special regulations were passed so that individuals who had been born in Germany and retained their German citizenship had to register with local police. Now, these individuals bore the brunt of the legislative restrictions throughout the course of the war. But as the war progressed, it, this category extended to individuals who had been born in an enemy country, but who had now become naturalised British subjects. So even though there were many individuals who had lived in Australia for a long time, had done the right thing, so to speak, become naturalised British subjects, lived in the country for decades. They subsequently became subject to the same restrictions as those born in Germany and resident in Australia. And similarly, as I mentioned beforehand, individuals whose fathers or grandfathers were born in an, in a state who was now at war with the king could also be subject to these regulations. So they were regulated in a number of different ways. The registration of their addresses was required. If they moved, they had to register with the local police at their new location. In Under the War Portions Act, they could be uh, interned. This included the internment of everyone from uh, those who had served in the German military or the reserves. And then it was extended to German nationals and any eventually naturalised British subjects who had been born in an enemy state. However, that wasn't enough for the Commonwealth government 
government at this particular time. And it sought to intern one man, uh, Franz Wallach, who had been born in Germany but become a naturalised British, su- British subject. It feared that the High Court wouldn't uphold his internment, so they created a provision that allowed for the, the internment of any individual considered to have hostile origins or associations. So this was an incredibly broad subject. It was discussed in, in Parliament with absolute abhorrence at how far Australia had come in using law to attempt to further its war effort. Uh, but it remained on the books for the course of the law, for the course of the war, sorry, slip of the tongue there. And in uh, these restrictions continued. In 1917, naturalised British subjects who had been born in enemy countries had their right to vote stripped away from them. This was very hard for many members of the community uh, who came under this category. And just that deprivation of that right and those other civil liberties, the fact that internment could be could be ordered without any uh, justification, any public recourse to a court of the judicial system was very hard to take for the population during this time. How did the laws passed affect um, Indigenous people in Australia? At the outbreak of the war, like any other individuals, many Indigenous people sought to serve their country. However, in 1910, a particular provision had been introduced into the Defence Act. And this Defence Act was one of the first pieces of legislation passed in the country when we became a federation in 1901. And what this provision did, this provision that was introduced in 1910, it exempted certain people from enlistment or from being required to enlist. And it included a whole range of people who you think, okay, you understand why they wouldn't be, um, they might not be allowed to enlist. So for example, uh, members of parliament, uh, ministers of religion, uh, police officers, even though police officers serve, etc. But then it contained this provision that excluded individuals from enlistment where that individual was not substantially of European origin or descent. That is what the legislation said. So as a result, this provision was used to exclude many Indigenous men who were seeking to serve Australia during this time. It had really devastating impacts, as you can imagine. This just furthered the discrimination that was experienced by Indigenous people in the country during this time. Now, we know that Indigenous men were, in fact, able to serve, or many were able to serve. It's been estimated that about a 1,000 Indigenous men were able to serve during this time. But this provision really had a devastating impact on people who simply wanted to serve their country and who in fact were had been born in the country and wanted to now serve. And it's an interesting contrast. It was pointed out um, the fact that men whose parents were born in Germany were allowed to enlist in, in the um, Australian Imperial Force, but these other men simply weren't allowed to because of this, uh, because of this discriminatory provision in the Defence Act. And how did how did the law affect free speech in Australia? So like many countries, Australia introduced a censorship regime whereby certain newspapers had to be submitted to uh, the censor's office to be reviewed prior to publication. And it would be an offence to, for example, fail to submit that work censor's office. If censorship occurred, it became an offence to indicate that censorship had occurred by leaving blank space in the newspaper when it was printed, for example. And it was also an offence to 
make any statements that were prejudicial to recruiting or would likely cause disaffection to His Majesty. And one man who attracted the attention of authorities continually throughout the war was a newspaper editor named Tom Barker, who was actually born in Britain. He immigrated to Australia via Zealand. And while he was in New Zealand, he became a member of the revolutionary group, the Industrial Workers of the World, or the Wobblies, as they were more affectionately known as. So Tom Barker was the editor of the Australian newspaper for the Wobblies, the newspaper called Direct Action. And he ran a number of stories and undertook a number of actions that attracted the attention of authorities. So in mid-1915, he posted a series of posters around Sydney uh, called, and they're famously referred to as the Two Arms posters. And they they mock the industrial uh, capitalist model of workers following their masters to the front when in fact their masters perhaps were not even serving. And Barker was prosecuted for the use of these posters or putting the, publishing these posters, though he was eventually uh, released on a technicality. Perhaps more seriously, though, was when in late 1915, he published a cartoon on the front page of Direct Action that featured a soldier on a crucifix. And there were various statements nearby, but not directly associated with the cartoon. He was subsequently prosecuted for not uh, for, for making statements prejudicial to recruiting. And he spent a fair few months in jail as a result of that. There was a big public campaign for his release, the fact that Australians were willing to tolerate a lot, or people within the Australian community were willing to tolerate a lot during the war and the impact on their daily lives. But there was something about interference with free speech that really unnerved many in the community. And there are letters to the Defence Minister, who I mentioned beforehand, Senator George Foster Pearce, and he said that in response to these letters, he said that he took free speech very seriously. And in fact, he was responsible for ordering any prosecution. He would always review the circumstances. But given that he was often one of the individuals who was most criticised, it was it was a bit too small a world, so to speak. It was a bit of a conflict of interest. Barker was eventually released from prison, uh, but that was really the beginning of the end for the Wobbly. A special piece of legislation was uh, created at the end of 1916, specifically targeting the industrial workers of the world. By 1917, it had become an offence to be a member of the association. And both the Wobblies and their very successful newspaper were ultimately wound up during this time. Barker was eventually actually deported to Chile um, after he had served some additional time in prison in Australia. And he went on to work with Vladimir Lenin. So he had a very interesting life. Uh, But he really was a champion of free speech in Australia during the Great War. And when you look back on on the way that these laws were implemented against the the so-called threats, do you think that they were done in a in a just and fair manner, given that the, the benefits we have of hindsight. In my view, I don't believe that they were done, that they were created or that they were applied in a fair and just manner. Now, I know that we have the benefit of hindsight now, and I absolutely agree with the use of law to boost a war effort or to boost the war effort in a country. This wasn't unique to Australia. Every country involved Great War introduced some law to modify the home front circumstances to direct the war effort. But the zealousness with which Billy Hughes and Robert 
Gowron and those others involved in the Commonwealth Government during this time pursued the use of law as a tool against citizens in Australia was simply too much. There was simply too much lost, simply too many individuals, individual liberties lost during this time. So my view is that although law was absolutely needed, the extent of the laws just went far beyond what was actually required by the circumstances. And do you think there's any sort of legacy or lessons we can actually learn from those, from that experience? For the general public, I think an important lesson is accountability and holding those who write laws that affect our daily lives, affect our civil liberties to account, to make sure we understand the laws that we live under and to make sure that if a particularly draconian or oppressive law is introduced, that we make sure those laws are repealed. There were some very concerning things happening during the First World War in the Australian legal sphere. And we actually still see the consequences of those today. It wasn't until 1920 that the law was, these laws began to be repealed. And even in the legislation that repealed a number of these laws, the government sought to reintroduce a number of the provisions that it found very venient to have on its books during this, during the war. So for example, around public assembly and protest. So I think the public makes sure that they hold those to who write these laws to and enforce these laws to account. And for government policymakers, they need to make sure that these laws are proportionate because even if those at the time might be willing to abide by them, this might not be as, as forgiving when the big picture is viewed overall. And finally, where can people learn more about your work? Please take a look at my Twitter uh, account. My hand is at Dr Kate Bond, where you can find a range of information and resources about the book. Uh, my book, Law in War, Freedom and Restriction in Australia During the Great War, is published by New South Book and can be ordered through bookstores in the UK, including Waterstones and Book Depository. Catherine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.